Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. Last month, I gave a presentation at the Aging in America conference in D.C. about the power of stories to create change. During the presentation, I said many of us who care for a loved one are in a kind of caregiving closet. We're afraid to come out and talk about how hard it is to care for someone we love, maybe because we don't want to violate a family member's privacy, or we don't want to risk worsening an already difficult relationship with a sibling. Or maybe because we think what we're going through is tough, but it won't last. So we might as well ride it out in silence. If you're nodding your head right now, you understand why today's guest was both eager and reluctant to share her story. Fortunately for us, the eager side won out. But out of respect for her family's privacy, we won't be using any real names in this interview. What I can say is that our guest is a former creative director and a producer at the MTV Networks. She's a baby boomer. She joins us from New York, and I'm honored to have her on the show. So let's set the stage for our listeners by having you tell us about your background. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I have one sibling, an older sister, by three years. My parents were both very artistic. My mom is... 86 and still living in Pittsburgh. Uh, my father passed away in 2013. He was an inventor. He held many patents. He had a biotech startup. It was his baby. It was what he invested all his money in, all his energy, all his creative juices. It was what informed all of our lives trying to get this startup off the ground. He went quite far with it. It ultimately failed, and literally just last week, our family had to sign papers to give away even the name of the company, and all of our family money went into that, and my parents were financial uh, disasters, pretty much. My Mm -hmm. mother, a successful artist, she's shown her work all over the world, Mm -hmm. but although my father came from an affluent family, he did not have any business sense, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And my sister and I both realized decades ago that my parents were going to be a financial train wreck and discussed what we were going to do about that. And my sister and her husband had clearly thought about this. And she told me then and there that there was no way she was going to allow my parents' demise to become her family's demise. Mm. And so that kind of set the stage for what was to pass years later. In 2012, my mother became very sick with a terrible case of spinal stenosis. Although she was seen by many prominent doctors, and Pittsburgh has a very well-regarded 
medical system. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nobody was able to properly diagnose the problem. And when she was scheduled for surgery, April 5th, 2012, what I had suspected simply by Googling turned out to be the reality. After the surgery, she had been diagnosed with something called cauda equina, which completely has wrecked my mother's life. She had already been diagnosed with Parkinson's in about 2005, but it was not at all an issue. Nobody would even have noticed she had Parkinson's, Mm -hmm. but the combination of the cauda equina and the Parkinson's has left my mother barely able to walk, chronic pain, nerve pain, and needs assistance now 24-7. How do you spell that, what you just U, D like David, A, mm-hmm. and then equina, E-Q-U-I-N-A. Would you like me to explain it a little? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yes. Cauda equina is something which I like to tell people about because stenosis and herniated discs are so common, and yet many medical professionals don't recognize this. It's when you have such pain that you begin to feel tingling in the saddle area, or if you have any difficulty urinating, walking, these are hallmarks of something called cauda equina, which literally means horse's tail in Hmm. Latin. And it is the bundle of nerves that sit below the spinal column, and it can render people paralyzed. Some people acquire this through an accident, a car accident, and some people and most people through this degenerative disc issues. And for some reason, unfortunately, many professionals don't recognize it in time. And that is exactly what happened to my mother. Hmm. It's just a terrible thing to live with. There is no cure and you have to manage it. Mm -hmm. And it's degenerative as is the Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. So my mother is considered a complex patient. And she's in Pittsburgh. She's in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. She lives in a subsidized apartment building. They have common dinners, but you don't have to go, but Mm -hmm. you are allowed to go to dinner with other people in the common dining space. And we had to get to a place where we spent down so that my mother was eligible for medical assistance. So the journey in 2012, I'll just speak about briefly, we were still living in our family home and we had begun to see signs of dementia and anger in my father. But again, as is so common, it was not diagnosed properly. They thought, and that's no one's fault, it's just one of the difficulties of diagnosing dementia. My father also started to have walking issues. So the year that my mother spent so sick and in pain before she had her operation, my father became more and more alienated. And you saw signs of this brilliant man not able to focus, not able to spend time on the computer the way he used to, Mm -hmm. not able to write. Mm -hmm. He would avoid social situations. Mm -hmm. And my father was absolutely the most social person you can imagine. At his funeral, people even spoke about my father the way Anne Bancroft described Mel Brooks, that the minute you saw the door handle open and he came in, you knew the party was about to begin. Uh And that was my father. And Mm -hmm. he was just avoiding every social situation. My mother went into the hospital and I took two weeks off with family medical leave. Mm -hmm. I came to Pittsburgh to help thinking that that would get my mother through the surgery and through rehab and back home. 
And what began as two weeks turned into three months. And my father and I began this journey, which was the most difficult time of my life, but also the most rewarding. We were in the trenches together. Mm -hmm. He went downhill over those three months. What began as my father still being able to shower and walk ended up with we had to hire a caregiver for my father. He never missed a single day visiting my mother in the hospital with me. We would be there from 9 a.m. till 9 p.m. at night every single day. But over time, it meant that I had to get my father into the car with his walker, get him out of the car to go to dinner, back in the car, get him out of the car again, up the few steps to the house, get him organized inside the house, and it became just so difficult. And so I spent three months with both my parents this way until my mother was discharged. And three months later, my parents sold the family home and moved into this subsidized building. And six months later, my father was gone. Mm. So it was a very difficult time. My mother, in the span of one year, almost died, sold our family home, moved into a new place far away from her friends, and lost her husband. Mm. So it was really tough. So she was in the hospital for three months? Yes. So my mother was in the hospital for three months. The first spell was six weeks. Uh-huh. She had to have another surgery after the initial surgery because she was not healing well. And that's because she was already so compromised by the time she had the surgery. Mm-hmm. Then she seemed like she was doing well. She had already had a couple of hospital-acquired infections, mm-hmm. but she was doing well enough that I had hired a caregiver to actually come to take her out of the hospital, get her discharged and come home and be with her along with my father and his caregiver. I didn't even think I needed to be there because that seemed to be how well she was doing. She was home for three hours and I got a call from my mother's caregiver and this was like an episode of CSI. I'm on the phone and she's telling me that my mother has a fever and it's going up and what should she do? And she was frantic. She was new. This was all new. Mm -hmm. And then I hear a blood-curdling scream because in the background, my father fell at the same time. And she dropped the phone and didn't realize I was still on the phone. And again, I'm in New York. Mm -hmm. And I'm hearing this scenario where my mother is passing out. My father has just fallen. And there are two caregivers in the home. And it's complete chaos. And I'm literally listening to all of this. So an ambulance came and took my mother back, and she almost died with vanco-resistant enterococcus. And the hospital said, when I questioned how did you discharge her with this, the hospital said, well, we can't guarantee she got it here, even though she was only gone for three hours. So that then began the next phase of the journey where she became really, really sick. And I'll never forget the feeling of helplessness being in New York and having my mother unconscious in Pittsburgh and not being able to get there until the next morning and thinking that was it. I just, there were many times in those three months where I can remember collapsing to my knees thinking, how am I going to take care of these two people? I, uh, my father was going downhill, my mother was so sick and we had limited funds. I was very worried about my job. 
then this happened, and this really was the worst of all. Mm. And I got there the next day, and I stayed another two months. Wow. And so your sister was not in the picture here at all. My sister, after the first two weeks, when I asked if she would then come and spell me, and again, at this point, no one had any idea how bad it was going to get. Sure. She made it very clear that she was not going to come. And they, my sister and brother-in-law, have a very different philosophy on caregiving. And we have not seen eye to eye about this. And it's been very emotionally draining to have the strain of that on our relationships. It's made what was sometimes a difficult relationship anyway. It's made it extremely difficult. And we live one block away from one another in New York City. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, well, yeah. what, what, what is their philosophy? Well, I have not heard it put into words, mm -hmm. but what I have heard is because my parents did not save and think about these things, it was just something that my parents were not good with, that basically they made their bed and now they have to lie in it. It's not going to affect us. Mm -hmm. We're not going to go down with the ship. We're not caregivers. And I have a very different feeling about that. We were raised in a Jewish home, and the Torah speaks about you even go begging yeah. if you don't have the means to take care of your parents. And I just feel that most people wouldn't allow their dogs mm -hmm. to live the way some people allow their parents to live. My sister is involved. She speaks to my mother every day. She visits more frequently now in the last couple of months than mm -hmm. she has in the last few years. But I am the primary caregiver. I take care of the finances, the doctor's appointments, all the caregivers, and we have 24-7. I found all the programs, the medical assistance programs, as my parents spent down we became eligible for different programs. I did all the research. I did all the paperwork. So I am mission control. Right. So how did it affect your professional life? So I had been at MTV for about a decade and loved it, but I was also completely burnt out doing all the big productions on the digital side. You know, I did many video music awards, movie awards, and I was burnt out. Mm -hmm. And so I took time off. I was foolish in thinking that it would be very easy because I was in great demand to get another job like that. And I actually went to Paris, took an apartment in Spain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I did some traveling mm -hmm. and then committed the crime of turning 50, which <laughs> I did not understand the ramifications of that. And then my parents' demise, mm -hmm. and I had to take a job in the marketing department of a friend's small company, and I took a 66% pay cut mm -hmm. and have never been able to leave that job because that job provides the freedom I need. I take three months and more off every year to be in Pittsburgh, and the truth is my job is taking care of my mother, but I do it from a distance. I go every other month, I spend a week or 10 days there, I don't get paid when I'm there, and this will have, as with so many caregivers, will have serious ramifications for me down the line with Social Security and who mm -hmm. will take care of me. Mm -hmm. uh, 
in my sister's parlance, it would be, why are you repeating the same mistakes as our parents? And for me, I don't feel like I have a choice. Mm-hmm. And you're getting something out of it emotionally. Well, it's also been the most profoundly rewarding experience of my life. Not yeah. only did I get to know my parents in a brand new way, but it's the most important thing I can imagine ever doing. And, you know, I do believe in the golden rule, and I try to live by that. Yeah. And who better to live by that than with your parents? And who would take care of my mother in the way that she needs? Many people have said, my parents stayed alive because of me. I don't believe it's that simple. But there were moments that if I hadn't been there, I don't know what would have happened. Mm-hmm. How is your mom feeling towards you? Does she, do you have a good relationship with her? Yes, we have a very close relationship. And from what I, little I've read about you and your mom, I, I see the similarities. My mother is also Canadian. She's mm-hmm. from Saskatchewan. <laughs> and we've been very close all of our lives. And she feels very, very grateful and very guilty at the same time yeah. that she's taken so much of my life. And I do show my anger at times. I am not pretending that I'm a martyr and I act like, you know, no problem. This is what I want to do. I do get angry about the sacrifices I've had to make. Mm-hmm. And I do refer to this as a tsunami for all of us, Mm -hmm. and I certainly have felt it in my life. I mean, that day in 2012, I had no idea what a sudden and deep dive I was going to take. I feel like I've aged exponentially. My income has never recovered. You know, on and on. The stress is beyond words. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there are no words to describe the emotional... It's beyond satisfaction. It's just the, the reward of being there to help a parent is unspeakable. Yeah. I get exactly what you're saying. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the whole narrative we have in this country about aging, about long-term care, what you would say to the presidential candidates about this. What do our policymakers need to hear? Well, that is a great question, because I think this conversation is about so much more than my story or your story. It's all of our stories. And I find it alarming that you don't hear this discussed in the debates. It's not front and center on seemingly anyone's radar. It is absolutely a public policy, civil rights issue. I know that there is the RAISE Act in Congress Mm -hmm. that we should all be behind, I'm a visual thinker, Mm -hmm. and I feel like we need to rebrand aging and caregiving specifically. I know that people are reimagining end of life. We need to reimagine aging and caregiving. It's all part of the continuum, and that is what people need to start to understand. And I think the only way people will truly understand it is because it's going to affect all of our pocketbooks. Medicare cannot sustain, again, the tsunami that is happening. Boomers are going to be flooding the Medicare system. And at the same time, the low- and mid-income boomers were hit the hardest in the recession. And who's going to be paying into this system? And just similar to what happened with AIDS in the 80s and people were forced to spend down, and it was an awakening that you had to spend down to be able to live, Mm 
Mm-hmm. Because, again, AIDS had to be redefined as a, a continuum of care. Mm-hmm. It wasn't an acute illness. It became a chronic illness. Well, guess what? Aging is chronic. Mm-hmm. And it, as we age longer, by the simple process of aging, boomers are going to become complex patients mm-hmm. simply because they're aging longer. And that is a continuum of care. And we all know now that we all prefer to age in place. Well, who's going to take care of us? Mm-hmm. And boomers are going to demand more because we're used to getting what we want. (laughs) Exactly. We're used to getting what we want. We're more entitled. And the other face of this problem are domestic caregivers, sure, domestic workers. And they are also the unsung heroes. And believe me, I can tell you horror stories because we cannot pay privately. We started out paying privately. We started out paying $20,000 a month for caregivers until we spent down. But what I realized fairly quickly out of necessity was spending down was the smartest strategy because once you're receiving medical assistance, it opens up a new world of possibilities. And the system is incredible. People have you know, a stigma against medical assistance. I know my mother even feels still a bit ashamed about it. Yet the system does provide some amazing things. At least I can speak to that in terms of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. It is state by state, and different cities reimburse caregivers differently. Pittsburgh does not reimburse, for instance, as well as Philadelphia. And this is a major issue because we are putting our most precious people, just as with teachers being underpaid, domestic workers are grossly underpaid, And so there's no loyalty. Yeah. So were you taking advantage of the Medicaid? Yes. Yeah, right. Because we actually looked into that for my mom, too. Get the government to pay for some of this stuff. Not because we want to leech off the government, but because the cost is so disproportionately borne on the families, right? Absolutely. So it's a matter of what we value as a culture. That's right. And not just does this occur in the home, but God forbid your loved one has to go to a nursing home. People don't realize that very, very few people can sustain their loved ones in a nursing home over a great period of time without having to apprise themselves of Medicaid, medical assistance. No one can afford private pay. And people don't understand that, and people don't get their finances in order ahead of time. I mean, it's a very uh, gnarly landscape to navigate. You have to do a lot of research. Before my mother was on medical assistance, I found out about a program for people who were on the cusp, and that provided certain services that we were able to get in the home, which helped tremendously, and that helped bridge the gap before my parents had to go fully on medical assistance. Well, actually, while my father was alive, my mother was not yet on medical assistance purely. Mm -hmm. And then, to our great surprise, and we are so grateful my mother is allowed to get 24-7 help, and she cannot live alone anymore. Mm -hmm. But if you break it down, it is so much more cost-effective for the government to keep my mother at home and paying caregivers. So she has 24-7 care now. Is it one person living with her or two on two two shifts? This is the underbelly of it all that people don't realize, and this is why there is such a need, again, as a public policy issue, to increase wages for domestic workers. For instance, in our case, caregivers are reimbursed at about 
ten dollars an hour, sometimes right. eleven. Right. And that's all. Right. So even though my mother is the most lovely, beautiful woman, they love her, but there's no true loyalty. It's a difficult job. So what is basically a three shift a day job. For instance, last weekend, one caregiver just disappeared. My mother had to have five strangers come in a 48-hour period. Wow. So imagine an 86-year-old woman who can't get up by herself and go to the bathroom by herself without help having a stranger walk in at 11 o'clock at night. Mm. To make it even more present, last night, we had yet another new caregiver come because weekends overnight shifts are very difficult to fill. So a woman came at 9 o'clock, and I call my mother at each shift change when there's somebody new just to make sure she feels safe. And my mother was absolutely intimidated and afraid of this woman. And she said she knew how to handle it, but she was afraid to be caught talking with me on the phone. Mm. I mean, it's very nuanced, all of this, mm-hmm. and it really comes down to dollars and cents. Mm-hmm. At the point that you were spending three months with your mom at her hospital bedside, did you contemplate moving back to Pittsburgh? Absolutely, and I absolutely would have. But as life would have it, um, there was a poet who said something like, if I tell my grief, it all becomes comic. Literally, I had just been accepted into a housing complex in New York, which I had been on a waiting list for for 20 years. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Which is subsidized. Uh And when I put in the application, I did it thinking it would be for my niece and nephew because surely I would be married by then and probably Uh not living in New York. Well, Uh (laughs) as luck would have it, (laughs) I I was not married and needed a place to stay. And my income at that moment in time, you know, had it happened a year prior, I wouldn't have qualified, but huh. I qualified. Huh. And people in New York will tell you it's like winning the lottery. And it has to be your primary residence. So it literally is my nursing home. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is where I will be able to live. It is actually considered one of the first NORCs, naturally occurring retirement communities oh. in the country. And it's literally a block from where I was paying $2,500 a month to live, and I won't tell you how much I pay now, but it's eminently more affordable. I I own the place. So uh, this this is my Sophie's Choice. Wow. So the community that you're now living in is, what did you say is the first NORC? Can you explain that? Naturally, it's an acronym for Naturally Occurring Retirement Community, and NORCs are the sort of test balloons for aging in place. I see. In New York. In New York City. This this Mm -hmm. one is uh, in New York City, and it's an amazing complex, amazing. People continue to vote. It's thousands of people live in the buildings. There are several, many of them. And we just voted two years ago, I think it was, whether to go private or keep it the way it is as, as a limited equity. And an overwhelming majority voted to keep it limited equity so that middle-income people have a place to live. It was started by a union, so it has a real socialist history, and it's an amazing development. And how many of them are there in New York City? 
there may be one other in New York, but okay. they may have privatized. I'm not sure. But there are NORCs across the country okay. now. Okay, okay. This has been written up in the New York Times, this building, many times. It has social services. It was started by the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union. Wow. And John F. Kennedy and Eleanor Roosevelt came to the christening in the 60s. It really has a very strong political history, and people are very proud of being cooperators here. You buy a co-op, but it's limited equity. You do not earn equity on your investment, mm -hmm. so people never leave, hence the aging in place. And how many units are there? Uh, over 3,000. Oh, my gosh. So that is a Sophie's Choice. Yes. Oh, that must have been so hard for you. It's yeah, been I mean... heart-wrenching because I am in the position with not being married or having children, mm -hmm. to make that move. Right. I totally understand my sister not being in that position. And that's why I'm eternally grateful to the present job I have, because they've allowed me to go back and forth mm -hmm. and have been so beautifully understanding of my dilemma. And the reality is there's no one-size-fits-all, and there's no one way to do anything in this area. So we have to also be careful to take care of ourselves as caregivers. And you have to have the energy required to spend time with your mother. And one of the best ways of doing that is to take care of yourself and stay where you need to stay. And it's still wrenching, but, yeah. um, you know, you really do have to take care of yourself. You absolutely do. I'm not good at it. I can tell you I've, <laughs> I've gone downhill <laughs> in many ways. But oh. the one thing that I have held on to is this apartment. <laughs> and good. I will hold on to it until I'm kicked out. Because, <laughs> and hopefully that won't happen. Because I do recognize that, again, this is my nursing home. Do you talk about this stuff with your friends? Absolutely. That's good. All the time. We talk about this topic uh, nonstop because we're all in it together right. as most of us are at this age and everybody's you know going through a different journey as you say you know I grew up in a, an affluent community uh -huh. and again because my father's family was well off people I guess didn't really understand <laughs> what our situation was or is mm -hmm. so everybody else is paying privately for care mm -hmm. but you know i let everybody know that everybody needs to be doing their homework because eventually everybody has to understand what living longer entails mm -hmm. do you think you have a better appreciation for it now than you did before all this happened unquestionably yeah. i had no idea about this my only experience was a grandmother in pittsburgh who was able to pay for private caregivers and live at home until she passed away in her 90s. And my mother's mother in Canada also lived like a queen until 105. She passed away in 2013 and in her home, and she was able to afford to sponsor Filipina caregivers to live with her for maybe a decade or more. And she was one of those outliers. She was in incredible health of absolute sound mind and then I personally believe she made a decision because she was very large and in charge her whole life <laughs> that it was time to go. And she, within three months, passed away at home. She wrote her own obituary. She had wow. everything in order. She told the caregivers what nightgown she wanted to have on. Wow. Our cousin was called over who was there and was there with my grandmother. And my grandmother gave her a thumbs up and passed away. Wow. She chose and her own way the, out. Exactly. And after the funeral, I had a headache, but I could not find an aspirin in my grandmother's apartment. She was amazing. Wow. 
So how is your mother's health now in terms of her life expectancy? Well, she has a degenerative disease. Right. Um, my father, what happened with my father was we were sort of talked into that maybe we should try the nursing home, which was across the campus from where my mother lives, mm-hmm. because it was getting difficult for my mother to sort of handle all that was going on with my father. And he was just going downhill, but he was lucid okay. some of the time. But he was also in his own world. He chose as his escape, and he would discuss it with you openly, to listen to music. And this is not uncommon with people with dementia. Um, So he would have headphones on and just escape because he really was having so much difficulty participating. So we tried the nursing home, which was a gut-wrenching decision for us. And this was his biggest fear. And he made it very known to everyone that he was to be taken out of there immediately. Hmm. And it was so interesting because a team of psychiatrists came through and he told them about his startup and what it involved. And it was an incredible thing that he had done with this. And then my mother and I arrived and they wanted to sort of fact check with us because they thought he was lying with dementia. (laughs) And when we told them it was all true, they were shocked. (laughs) And they were the first ones to diagnose my father with uh, Parkinson's with Lewy body dementia. And bingo, everything made sense. And about two months later, I went home for Memorial Day. We went out to dinner with friends. I used to, I still do like to make sure that my parents have some, or, you know, try to give them some civility the way they were used to going out to mm-hmm. a, a nice meal and sit mm-hmm. up. We sat outside with friends because they have such an incredible group of friends for 60 years, the mm-hmm. same group. It's amazing. And we came home from that dinner, and my father was fine at dinner, and he started to cough, and the next day it was clear he had pneumonia, even though the hospital didn't think it was true. And later that day, fortunately, as luck would have it, a close family friend was on call as the pulmonologist, and he said, do you have your father's papers in order? And I was shocked, because Mm -hmm. I thought it was pneumonia, Mm -hmm. and we would get through it, and... He said, this is the ninth inning. And I was like, well, is it the top or the bottom of the inning? I don't get it. You know, this is, you know we're from the Pittsburgh Pirates. Like, come on, is it the top or the bottom? And, and then uh, my father was alert enough in and out that heard that he had the choice to get a uh, procedure done where it would open some of the uh, air tubes to help his swallowing. And then he would be taken to the nursing home. And he sort of opened his eyes. At one point, he said, nursing home? What about the nursing home? Mm. And then we asked him if he wanted the procedure. And he said it would be overkill. And then he was in hospice two days later. And I feel like he won. Mm -hmm. I feel like he was so, so brilliant. And he knew that he would just cycle back. He knew enough. He would be cycling back and forth, and that was not it. And he made it out. Mm-hmm. And How old was he when he died? 87. Mm-hmm. 87. Does your mom have any of her artwork still? Tell us about what she did, sort of work she did. Yes, I wish I could give you the website, but it's not quite ready because I've, I'm putting together a website. We're going to have a show in August. She's a, a watercolor watercolorist, but not in the traditional sense. She did large works abstract, minimal, just beautiful, beautiful work. It's 
been in mm. museums. It's, you know, shown in New York at one point. She's been shown in Washington and in Israel and Africa. I mean, she's really super talented. She was super talented in everything. Mm. And, you know, she's never, ever complained about her situation. Does she? Which is yeah, well, you know, I mean, that's that generation, too. Well, I guess it really depends on the person, but... They're not complainers. We are, you know. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I, I complain morning, noon, and night. <laughs> <laughs> um, does your mom have her work? Is she surrounded by her work? What is her physical environment like? Yes. The apartment, actually, for what I consider a subpar building, mm-hmm. <laughs> with good, a building with good intentions, if but I do say not so. well-maintained, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, she's got a great apartment. She has two bathrooms, a very large bedroom. It's uh-huh. a teeny kitchen, but they say that's because they encourage people to eat communally. Yeah. But she cannot go downstairs all the time. She's not well enough to do that much of the time. But she has her artwork all over the apartment. Caregivers love it. And I love people from the agencies to meet my mother in person. Uh So they understand. And this is something where I think agencies, some agencies do send a supervisor over to initiate the relationship and to get a feeling for the patient. But the schedulers don't. And I feel like Mm -hmm. that would be very important. They often send a mismatch. Now, I understand that resources are scarce. So you sort of get what you can get. But I feel like the face-to-face meetings are extremely important. So you have a sense of the person and their personality, their needs, obviously their health needs. But yes, and we have, I have artwork all over my apartment. We have a storage unit in Pittsburgh because my mother had to close her studio. So we had nowhere to put it. So it's all in a storage unit and friends and family all over the world have her work. So how are your mom's spirits? She's an eternal optimist, and she's remarkable in that regard, and she's an absolute fighter. Her complement of physicians, they're just amazed by her fighting spirit, you know, with all of the problems she has, and they are legion. (laughs) She wants to fight, and I think that's something that people forget. They kind of feel like, oh, I I get this a lot, you know, well, she's 86, she's had a good life, you know, sort of go quietly into the night. Why put yourself and everyone else through that? Well, I think people need to remember they have to ask the person. Every person is different. My mother wants to live. And she lately, as of very recently, she's feeling more depressed. That is a symptom of the Parkinson's also. Mm -hmm. It's hard to tease out what's what. Mm -hmm. But I also think that she's realizing, again, like, you know, it's just so difficult now just to get to dinner or get dressed. Mm -hmm. So all of that is beginning to take a toll, plus the disease itself. You know, she does take an antidepressant, as did my father. You know, it's so important at that age, and it's so important to understand that your loved one needs a team Mm -hmm. of doctors. Mm -hmm. It's not just a single issue. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that you would like to share or talk about? Well, I, I want to thank you. You know, I understand that we're all in this together. It's a huge struggle, but there's so much reward to it as well. I really appreciate this, I guess, new genre of conscious storytelling. It's really helpful, and hopefully it's helpful to the speaker and hopefully helpful to the listener. And I just hope that everyone understands that this is a public policy issue and it's going to affect everyone and we need to make this center stage with our politicians it is a tsunami 
It really is. And there is so much to this issue. It's not just one area that needs addressing. It's many. And I think we need to understand the toll it's taking on family caregivers and what domestic caregivers need in order to take care of our loved ones and what the government needs to do. So I hope we can take this conversation to the next level. Yeah. Well, thanks. I'm so pleased that you made the decision to come on the show. You're incredibly articulate, and what you have to say is so important. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. The AgeWise podcast is produced and edited by me, Jana Panaritis, and you can listen to the show and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including most recently on Google Play Music. The AgeWise podcast is also distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the 24-7 streaming network that's always on for you. And don't forget to check out our website for more amazing caregiving stories from the field. Go to agewise.com, that's A-G-E-W-Y-Z, or Z, as my Canadian mother says, and find out how you can be a guest on the show. Remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours. 